0: Well, we have a special message about the timeless cross today. Since it's a communion Sunday, I don't always, but many times I break away from a series and and just do a cross-related message. Because years and years ago, I had a decision to make. Do I make my ministry about people and their desires, or do I make it about the greatness of Christ and the wonder of his cross? I chose the second of the two. This is greatly on my heart in these days, and it always encourages me to go to the cross work. That's why communion is a special thing for me. Hope it is for you. Going to one of the classic texts familiar to you and to me uh, about the crucifixion, and I wanna tell you about what I call the cross story and how it's impacted me and you for generations. Luke chapter 23 will be our text, verses 33 to 39. Here with me, the ancient text covered by the ancient spirit. Luke wrote, probably, by the way, from an eyewitness description given to him years later by John, after the cross was finished. Luke wrote this. And when they came to a place that is called the skull, there They crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. This is the ancient word of God. May God bless its teaching and bring us into an encounter with the marvel of the cross once again. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Though there was not faith for generations on my father's side of our family, there was faith on my mother's side, and uh, there was a a preacher born in 1900. He was the 11th child born at home in a farmhouse, and he uh, his mother died a day after he was born but she made a prophetic statement in a way when the midwife took the baby from her and they worked to try and save her life. As she handed my grandfather over, she said, now you have your preacher. She died the next day and he was raised by other family members. He was the 11th of 11 and of course, and he grew up and came to faith, and his mother's final words never left his life. In his uh, book that he wrote about his life called An Open Door, he wrote about a life in which he preached for 60 years. He was so poor that it took him until he was 30 years of age to, to graduate from Seminary, He had to work hauling ice up steps in Iowa for years to to earn enough to make his way through college and Bible school, and he did. And late to the ministry, he made up for lost time, and he preached from 1930 to 1990. He prayed often for a grandson who was particularly rebellious and who had gained his father's hatred for the faith he prayed often for his oldest grandson, that was me. Prayed for me to come out of darkness and light and to come out of rebellion to a saving knowledge of Christ. And through a miracle of God's grace on the college campus I did and uh, I wrote him about it. And he uh, read my letter to his congregation and broke down in the pulpit and thanks to God. He didn't live that many years after I was saved, but uh, it wasn't long before I knew that I was to be a preacher too, and so I gained some counsel from him. I still have uh, some cassette tapes, and believe it or not, some reel-to-reel tape of him preaching. I always had modestly to small-sized churches, but what a preacher he was. Preached without a note, not a piece of paper in front of him, all by memory, was a lion in the pulpit. But I inherited more than just uh, a good example from him. I inherited parts of his library, great books, books that are not in print anymore. All the great ones don't seem to be. And I pulled out a book of his by an author named Russell Jones, and the title of the book was Gold from Golgotha. Golgotha is our rendering of the Hebrew word for Calvary or the place of the skull, the place where Jesus was crucified. It's a marvelous old book uh, all about the great cross of Christ and what happened there. And I, I want to read you a quote as I begin that I'm sure my grandfather read and I know he believed because he preached Christ crucified. But here is a quote from that book from his library. Golgotha, the place of the skull, and the story of Calvary, is the focal point of revelation and history and experience. Think about that. What a powerful sentence. Do you want to know what the Bible is all about? What the revelation of God is all about, it's about what happened in those hours on Calvary, how history rolled toward it and how history has been altered from it. And everything that God says in his book either looks to or gazes back to Calvary. Golgotha is the focal point of revelation and history and experience. It's why you are changed by Jesus Christ today. He goes on, There God did his best and man did his worst. What a description of those hours. And their faith is justified. All that Jesus needed to do for you to have your sin erased and become justified in the eyes of God, done in those hours, and hope assured, everything you need to know to know that heaven will be yours, assured in those hours, and love conquers. The, The great question of what God is like was answered at Calvary. God is love. He even conquered his justice with his love. Calvary, he writes, interprets Jesus to all mankind. It tells the whole story. I believe that. It's what's powered my preaching career for over 30 years. And it's what I want to bring you today. I want to bring you the cross story. Because it summarizes everything you ever need to know as a Christian. I've gone to Luke because... uh, There we find the three stanzas, the three parts to the cross story. It tells in greater detail than some of the other gospels the first part, which was the hateful rejection of Jesus by people, people from all points of life, all levels of knowledge, all points of responsibility. The hateful rejection of Jesus by sinners. Secondly, it talks about the remarkable reaction of Jesus to sinners and for sinners, what he did and what he said over them as he was crucified. And finally, it talks about the powerful response of God to sinners. To their rejection, he brings the response of mercy and forgiveness. It's quite remarkable. And so there's the message. Walk with me through Cross the Cross story. First of all, as as, uh, my grandfather's author said, mankind was at his worst and committed the greatest of sins on that day. I believe we're going to see here the greatest sins ever committed. I'll tell you why in a few minutes. But people gathered on that day and it was the highlight of the hateful rejection of Jesus by sinners. You know, sinners have always rejected Jesus. I know I did. I mocked and taunted Christians and I mocked their God and ridiculed their Christ and proclaimed my lack of a need for a Savior, cursed his name. Sinners do. In fact, there seems to be a spring-loaded Sense that we need to defame that name more than the other, any other name. But on that day, people gathered and defamed the name in a style that history has never seen before or since. You need to, to get the whole scene here. And the first part of the scene, as Luke describes it, was this rejection of Jesus by sinners. As that author said, man was at his worst. One other author from a different work, also from my grandfather's library, believe it or not, said on that day when Jesus was crucified and when the day was done, man had done his worst. The precious one by whom the world was made had come into it, but the world knew him not, The Lord of glory had tabernacled among men, had come to dwell with us, but he was not wanted. The eyes which sin had blinded saw in him no beauty that he should be desired. At his birth, there was no room in the inn which... Prophesied the treatment he was to receive at the hands of people. Shortly after his birth, Herod sought to slay him, and this predicted the hostility that his person evoked and forecast the cross as the climax of man's hatred. Again and again, his enemies attempted his destruction during his living years and his preaching years, and now on Calvary, their vile desires are granted them. The Son of God had yielded himself up into their hands. A mock trial had been gone through and though his judges found no fault in him, nevertheless they had yielded to the insistent clamoring of those who hated him as they cried again and again, crucify him. And so the foul deed had been done. No ordinary death would suffice his implacable foes. A death of intense suffering and shame was decided upon. A cross had been secured. The Savior had been nailed to it. And so that's really what we see happening in the very first verse of what I read to you, where Luke said, And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And every person in the story of the gospels, whoever opposed Jesus is represented in the word they. It was a symphony of scorn that was heaped upon the Lord Jesus. And there were multiple members of the orchestra. Look at the passage I just read to you. It was the people that joined the rulers in crying out, crucify him. It was Pilate that humiliated him and Herod who piled on and humiliated him still further. It was the rulers that orchestrated it all. It was the soldiers who drove the nails and divided his garments. And it was even the worthless thieves on either side who joined in mocking someone purer than they would ever imagine. It was a symphony of scorn. And Luke shows us the players. First of all, the people. Go down to verse 35. The the crosses had been raised and the people stood by. Now you might say, well, it just says they stood by. Well, Luke uses an economy of words. Matthew's gospel had already been published and was well known among the readers and hearers of Luke's gospel. Matthew gives us more detail in Matthew 27, verses 39 to 40. The people did not just stand by and watch. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads which in Jewish culture was a sign of massive disrespect and mockery and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Mockery, the people scorning him and mocking him. Now you think, well, they were just an unusually mean-spirited people. Oh no, these were people that had had marvelous privilege in terms of hearing from God. No generation of people ever had the privilege that these people did of seeing the miraculous, hearing the mighty, viewing the purest Son of God, and and being in the presence of God. No generation has seen the miracles and the power and heard the preaching of Jesus Christ. The preaching was right from the throne room of God. He was the perfect preacher. Think of it. Jesus Christ, the God-man. No sin shielded him in his preaching. No, there was no mist of human frailty in his preaching. There was not a mistake in one syllable of what he ever said. And he preached always under the total power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Oh, what I would have given as a spirit-filled believer to be there when Jesus preached. I've often wondered in my mind... How golden that would be if I was a spirit-controlled believer listening to the wonders of the Son of God preaching. Well, they had that privilege. And sometimes before church or right after, there was a legitimate healing service. And miracle service. Sometimes going for hours And going on into the night where hundreds of people from all over the region would come and they were healed by Jesus. And you cannot convince me that some of those same people were now in that crowd and they had gone to mocking him. Oh, the depths of the sin of the human heart. People say, if I just see God prove himself, I'll believe. Oh no, you won't. These people had seen miracles. Some of them, I'm I'm convinced, in Jerusalem and the great feast of the Passover. Don't forget in Passover, they came by the hundreds of thousands from all over Israel, from Galilee, where Jesus had preached and done miracles for two solid years, from Samaria, where he had done miracles, from all the Decapolis, from everywhere. They would have come. And in that crowd, there had to be people who were healed by Jesus. There had to be people who had had their paralysis taken away, their lameness healed, who had had their sight restored and their hearing brought into their lives for the first time. There had to be people who were in that crowd wagging their heads at Jesus, who had been healed by Jesus. Oh, don't tell me that getting a miracle will turn you into a believer. Only the marvel of the Holy Spirit working in your repentant life will turn you into a believer and they had not tasted of true saving faith. I'm sure that there were some people who knew what it was like to have miracle bread cross their lips because they were among the thousands on the hillside when Jesus took the bread and multiplied the loaves, and they watched it happen in his hands. And they had tasted of that miracle. And there were people in that crowd who had had that experience. And, yet, and they'd all heard Jesus' teaching. Not all, but most or many because he was the most powerful voice in the region for three years. And as he preached, they couldn't miss the meekness and beauty of his life and the love of Christ. Oh, they'd had an encounter with God. In fact, just five days prior or so, less than a week, they'd all gathered around the gates of the city and welcomed him into Jerusalem saying, Hosanna to the Son of God. And yet, in a few short days, through a few short disappointments and through the confusion and spiritual haze that they lived in, they found themselves at the foot of Pilate's palace yelling out, Crucify him. I, I don't know what to tell you about that, except that the depths of the sin of man are unimaginable. And there they were. Their hateful rejection of Jesus, very clear. Of course, the rulers were also there. We go back to the text in verse 35. Says the rulers scoffed at him. Of course, they had wanted this day, as wicked as they were, and as blind as they were, they were sneering at him, scoffing at him. It's a very strong word in the Greek. It's used only here in one other time in the Gospel of Luke. It's a compound word. It meant to push up your nose at somebody. That, can you imagine? Can you see them all doing that? Just standing there in their beautiful golden robes and bringing their heads up constantly as, as his gaze fell upon them. That's what he saw. And intense derision and scorn. They were all there, layered in guilt they couldn't even recognize. Of course the soldiers were there as well and this was just another crucifixion for them but for some reason I think the, the enemy inspired them with a greater level of hatred than usual and instead of just crucifying verse 36 says they also joined in the mocking coming up and offering him sour wine to make his suffering deepen offering it perhaps as an offering to a king And saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. So the theater was complete. You had all these players on the stage of mockery. And then, of course, amazingly, the thieves joined in. One of the criminals, verse 39, who were hanged, railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And Matthew says they both mocked him, both of them. So it is true what the author said, that man had done his worst. I I mentioned earlier that this this was the place where the greatest sins in history were committed. You may disagree with me, but I think, as one author has pointed out, this was blasphemy at its pinnacle. Sinners can't do worse than this. This author writes, quote, "...without argument what is being spewed out of these evil hearts and evil mouths... Right at the Son of God is the supreme blasphemy, the ultimate desecration of holiness, the lowest sin ever committed, wickedness at its lowest, and it is deserving of divine cursing, divine threatening, divine vengeance, divine judgment, divine damnation. This is injustice without parallel, transgression without equal. This is heresy above heresy, irreverence above irreverence, profanity above profanity, sacrilege beyond comparison, we would expect Jesus to pour out furious denunciations on all of them to judge them, to make them pay for their outrageous, extreme iniquity immediately on the spot. Wouldn't you agree when you think about the righteousness of Jesus and the ugly hatred of these people? If you were God, wouldn't you call out to your son and say, son, that's enough. Come down off that cross You don't deserve a word of this, and they don't deserve a minute of you. Take them out. Let's judge them all. And would God not have been justified? He really would have. And yet, he doesn't. Instead of responding to man's worst with God's deepest judgment, as you and I, even with our flawed sense of justice, would say, I wouldn't blame God. To man's worst, God brings his best. Now that's to the second preaching point. We've seen the remarkable rejection of Jesus the ugly rejection. Now we go to the remarkable reaction of Jesus back into the text. You go to verse 33, and they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, the nails going through the extremities, the crossbar being lifted up so it dropped on the point of the cross, the shoulders strained out, and the agonies begun in verse 33. And then instead of bringing hell to earth, and getting his son off that ugly cross, God brings heaven to man. And a prayer comes from the lips of Jesus that is stunning. Let's look at the three things under this. First, of course, is the remarkable, the prayer of Jesus. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do notice, even though the English says, and Jesus said. It's not a saying. He didn't say this to the thin air. He didn't say this to himself. He didn't say this to people surrounding the cross. He prayed it. It is a prayer. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There's a world of wonder between verse 33 and verse 34 the ugliness and the worst of man in verse 33, the beauty and the best of God in verse 34. Earth speaks and acts in verse 33. Heaven speaks and acts in verse 34. This prayer of Jesus has never been fully exegeted or preached by anyone in history. It is so profound, I don't believe any human preacher has ever really gotten to the fullness of that prayer. I know this one hasn't. It is a marvel. It's very unique that in the Greek language, it doesn't say that he preached this or he preached it. He prayed it one time. When it it, it, it says, and Jesus said, the Greek there is in the imperfect. Let me give you one commentator. In the Greek original... The verb is imperfect, indicating continuous action in past time. So you could translate it, then Jesus kept saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He kept saying it continually through the early hours of crucifixion, from the time the cross was settled into the ground, maybe even before that, as he was laid out on the cross. And certainly after that, in the agonizing hours, as he had to pull his body up against the nails, pushing with his feet and pulling with his wrists, So he could get a breath, get his rib cage up for every breath because crucifixion was designed to kill you by suffocation slowly. And to, 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 to get a breath, you had to pull yourself up against the nail points through all the nerves in your extremities. And you got a breath and you drew back down and you pulled up again and exhaled and drew a breath and pulled back down. And that went on for hours and hours for Jesus. And so the only way he could have said this more than once was to pull himself up on that cross and say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then he would sink again. And some moments later, pull himself up again. And he would have to say it all over again. This commentator goes on. Can you reconstruct the picture? This is from Gold from Golgotha again. Arriving at the place of the skull Jesus looked about and prayed father forgive them for they know not what they do. As the centurion crushed him to the ground and tied his arms to the crossbeam and drove the nails he prayed father forgive them for they know not what they do. When the blunt spikes tore through each quivering limb he prayed father forgive them for they know not what they do. When they elevated him to the cross and dropped it on the post he prayed father forgive them for they know not what they do. When the crowd cursed and reviled he prayed father forgive them for they know not what they do. When the soldiers parted his garments before him, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And when the thieves railed in his ears on either side, he may have looked at them and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What a mighty Savior. Incredible. Indescribable. Now you would say, how could Jesus Christ... Have the presence of spirit and mind. How could he say this? Many reasons, I'm sure, coursing through the perfect God-man, but here were two that I arrived at in my study. First of all, he believed in a sovereign father because you see, in Psalm 22, which predicted the hours on the cross, centuries before a cross was ever designed to execute someone upon. The psalmist predicted Jesus arriving at the cross and how he would be looked at by the crowds around him. It says, but I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. A perfect prophecy of what happened that afternoon. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. That's literally what the Bible says those people were doing around him on Calvary. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Psalm 22.8. God predicted exactly the words that will come out of the mouths of those who scorn Jesus. And Jesus heard that and knew that the father was in control. This had to happen. This was predicted of the Messiah. This is the kind of hatred the Messiah would endure to save men and women. And this was not something that was happening outside the plan of the Father. Even the very words they used were under the plan of a sovereign Father. And so Jesus knew, as horrible as this was, his Father was in control. His Father was in thorough and total and authoritative control. What a mighty, mighty thing that is. His suffering was planned by the Father. And secondly, he believed in a saving Father, not just a sovereign Father, but he knew that God the Father had a purpose that could only be fulfilled if Jesus stayed on that cross, endured all that shame, went, to, went through death's door, and rose again. But part of that included is actually praying this prayer. Did you know that this prayer was prophesied in Isaiah 53, 12? Again of the Messiah. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. That speaks about what he will experience in heaven after the resurrection. He will be greatly rewarded with a saved people. Why? Because he poured out his soul to death. Jesus was on that cross to die, not just to demonstrate nobleness as some Christians teach today. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, one on each side, prophetic. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus prays for you now in heaven. But Jesus began praying for sinners then. He was to make intercession for the transgressors all around him. His words that day were a fulfillment of what, as Isaiah predicted, the Messiah would do centuries before. This was all part of God's saving plan. You see, he trusted in the sovereignty of God. He trusted in the plan of God. There are Christians today, they say, they can no longer believe that Jesus was a sacrifice They they believe it's too bloody a deed. They cannot understand and worship a God who would sacrifice his son in this way. Well, they don't understand the depths of human sin, and they don't understand that it was all planned from eternity, and they don't understand that it was the noblest act of the most wonderful God you can never imagine. Oh, yes. So the prayer of Jesus, a remarkable thing, and He says, Father, he calls out to Father in the most intimate terms that he did. But secondly, I want you to see the peril of the people. To Go back to his prayer. He calls out to the Father in the midst of this. They're in fellowship at this point. Later, when darkness falls and God the Father turns his back on God the Son, he no longer calls him Father. He uses the word Eli, the simple word for God. But here they're still in the fellowship of the moment. And he says, forgive them for they know not what they do. And this has been a source of contention and confusion for many over the centuries. What did this really mean? Some people today who don't want to believe that people are the sinners they are said that this was Jesus giving a blanket pardon for all humanity. They know not what they do. And that ignorance is enough to get you into heaven. Now that can't be true. We know that the whole Bible teaches against that. People are born sinners. They waste little time in living it out. And you've got a moral ledger in your life that has to be accounted for sometime. Really, if this was a blanket pardon in the past, Jesus would not even have needed to die. He and the Father could have just colluded and said, well, let's forgive them all anyway. There are people that teach that today. That's a blasphemy of this mighty moment. Well, what would it mean then if he says they they know not what they do? How did they know not what they were doing? No, it doesn't say that they didn't know the reality of what they were doing. I think it says they didn't know the enormity of what they were doing. They thought he was another misguided prophet and they thought it was just another crucifixion Friday. They uh, were angry at him for disappointing them politically and personally. But they really didn't know in a certain sense, that he was all that he had ever told them he was, that he really was the perfect and wonderful son of God, and that they were committing the deepest sin in planetary history. They didn't know the enormity of it. So they knew they were crucifying him, but they didn't know the enormity of it, the, the what of it all. But they should have. And this is why they were not guiltless. But he's praying mercy over the depths of their sin. One commentator I looked at this week said it this way, they didn't know the enormity of what they were doing or the depth of who he was, and yet they ought to have known. Their blindness was inexcusable. The Old Testament prophets which had all been fulfilled by Jesus were sufficiently plain to identify him as the Holy One of God. His teaching was unique for his very critics were forced to admit never man has a man spoken like this man has spoken. And what of his perfect life? He lived before them a life which had never been lived on earth before. He pleased not himself. He went about doing good. He was ever at the disposal of others. There was no self-seeking about him. His was a life of self-sacrifice from beginning to end. His was a life ever lived to the glory of God. His was a life on which was stamped heaven approval for the father's voice testified audibly from heaven twice this is my beloved son in whom i am well pleased no there was no excuse for their ignorance it only demonstrated the blindness of their hearts their rejection of the son of god bore full witness once for all that the carnal mind is enmity against god he's telling you what i told you there is no understanding the depth of the human heart in terms of its sinfulness applies it to today how sad to think that this terrible tragedy is still being repeated today if you don't know Jesus Christ and you've resisted the gospel you little know what you are doing in neglecting God's great salvation you little know how awful is the sin of slighting the Christ of God and spurning the invitations of his mercy that you have heard you little know the deep guilt which is attacked to your act of refusing to receive the only one who can save you from your sins you little know how fearful is the crime of saying I will not have that man reign over me you know not what you do think about that if you've resisted the gospel you little know what you have done because of the greatness of who it is that you are blindly rejecting and yet in 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 the face of that kind of rejection the mercy of God still shines through and Jesus says oh if they only knew the depth of what they were doing but even then they would still do it That's why historians say this is the worst episode of sin in planetary history. The worst sin committed against the best savior. But in the face of all of that, man's worst, God's best comes because his prayer is simply two words, forgive them. Forgive them. Not some blanket forgiveness like universalists teach. Not some turning away and saying, well, people will be people like liberals teach. No, this one had a cost. You see, how does God forgive sin? How does he forgive sin? I told you at the beginning that this passage cries out that God is a God of love, but I also said... He will not insult his mercy. One author put, this, put it this way. God would not exercise mercy at the expense of justice. God, as the judge of all the earth, would not set aside the demands of his holy law. Yet God would show mercy. How? Through one making full satisfaction to his outraged law. Through his own son taking the place of all those who believe on him and bearing their sins in his own body on the tree. God could be just and yet merciful at the same time. That's the marvel of the cross. And that's how Jesus could pray, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They need forgiveness, Lord. And it's as if you could hear heaven saying, oh, I will as you suffer and die. Hebrews 9, 22, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified by blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The cross had to go forward, and Jesus had to suffer it all so that God could answer his prayer of making a way home for sinners. One, one other author put it this way. It's as if Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them by condemning me. Make me the culprit of Calvary. How stunning that is. And that's what happened. Like I said, if Jesus had not made this prayer, some believe that judgment would have just fallen on those people and on the race. There would have been no answer for mankind. But he did pray it, and then he died the death that he prayed for. That's an amazing thing. He prayed and then he died to answer his own prayer. And to fulfill what Isaiah had prophesied centuries before, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. That's the whole story of Luke 23. That's the whole story of Father forgive them for they know not what they do. As he went all the way through the valley of the shadow of death and then rose in victory, his chastisement brought us peace. That's the remarkable reaction of Jesus on the cross for sinners. As far as I know, the Bible never contains one prayer by the son to the father that the father didn't answer you know of one I don't God answered this one that's the third point of the preaching and I close there was a powerful response of God to sinners began at the cross and it continues today you see when the son prayed father forgive them for they know not what they do the father said I will And then the sky darkened and the wrath fell and the blood flowed for agonizing hours. Jesus calling out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, no longer father, but my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he called out, it is finished. And into thy hands I commit my spirit. And the great work was done that day. Gloriously called out to the whole world on Resurrection Day. But even as the dying was was happening, the Father began answering the travail of his Son by touching hearts, and people began to come into the new kingdom the new covenant kingdom. I believe the very first person to enter into the kingdom of the new covenant was the thief who had been mocking him. Because we know later on in Luke, in Luke chapter 23, in verse 42, the thief is struck by the spirit with a spirit of repentance. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. He was saved by seeing his sin and turning and seeking his savior. It happened that fast for all eternity. So perhaps the very first soul to enter into a new covenant relationship with God was that thief. But he was going to be followed in his belief by the soldiers who were at the foot of the cross. Because as they watched the darkness come and the earthquake come and they listened to the words of the master as he mastered his own death and called out to the father and declared it is finished. And when he gave up his spirit, controlling the moment of his own death, a trained centurion who had seen it all, had never seen this, and it says in Matthew 27, 54, when the centurion and those who were with him, the entire guard detail, detail, who'd been throwing dice for his clothes, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, and they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. I've preached about this before when we did the characters at the cross study, and I've told you I believe all of them stepped into the kingdom that day. Well, how about the people that were walking by and wagging their heads and scorning Jesus who had initially been touched by his preaching? How about them? Well, it's interesting that in the book of Acts, some 60 days later or so, they were gathered around somebody who uh, had something to say now about standing for Jesus, the apostle Peter. And in Acts chapter 3, after a mighty miracle of God, he was preaching, and those people gathered around in the colonnade of Solomon by the thousands in Jerusalem. And he pointed out their guilt so they saw their sin, and then he pointed out Jesus so they could seek their Savior. He says, and you killed the author of life. All of you gathered around Pilate's porch and later that day around Calvary's hill. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead, to this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, the man that was healed there in the crowd, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of all of you. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You didn't even know the depths of what you were doing, but you still killed the author of life. He didn't let them away from their guilt. But even here, the mercy of God comes as did also your rulers but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer he thus fulfilled Jesus knew he had to do it all the prophets said he had to do it and he went all the way for you and he rose from the dead now and is alive what's the answer repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out and that the prayer of Jesus might be answered father forgive them was the prayer of Jesus answered Oh, yes, Acts chapter 4, verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. That means the crowd, including women and children, was upwards of ten to 15,000. Oh, the Spirit of God came. And intent on his heart was answering the prayer of Jesus, forgive them. Many out of that crowd trusted Christ. And your Bible says, even the rulers, you remember them, the most guilty of all? In Acts chapter 6, verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. We don't know, but there might have been one or two of the finely garmented men standing on a hillside, Lifting their noses at Jesus. Who months later, bowed their knees to Jesus. Jesus did say, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth on that cross, I will draw all people to myself. All kinds of people. The highest level of sinner. The most ignorant. The most culpable. Oh. People at their worst were forgiven by the sacrifice of God's best. And the good news is they still are today. Sinners like me, sinners like you, and like people you know. I've, I've made this statement from this pulpit many times, but I'm going to ask you again. Let me ask you to silently say in your mind, do you know somebody in your life today, do you know somebody today who is beyond the power of the gospel? My answer to you is, no, you don't. If everything I've preached to you is true, and if the work of God we've seen in the scriptures is true, you and I really don't know someone today who is beyond the power of the gospel. For there we saw the people who surrounded themselves in the worst sin in history, given the greatest grace in history. All they had to do was see their sin and seek their Savior. He's still about that mighty work. I think communion today is a time where we can both give him thanks that one day he made Calvary's Hill the place where all of revelation and all of history comes together, where he made it real for us. Let communion today be a time where you say, Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you answered the prayer of Jesus Christ. And you forgave me. And maybe as you're taking the bread and the cup, you can think of that person who you think is on the edge of being beyond the power of the gospel and just say a prayer for them. And ask God to answer the prayer of Jesus.